Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And tonight, this is going to actually be our third show in a series of shows we're doing to commemorate uh, 9-11, and not to commemorate it in a celebration, but more or less to memorialize it so that we never forget this horrible day for our country. And uh, folks, if you like Police Off the Cuff uh, on YouTube, please subscribe, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. Uh, we got some exciting things happening on this show, uh, not even to mention um, uh, having Bob Martin come on, on on Thursday the 9th for the second time for the 9-11, uh, the 20-year anniversary, which we're going to also commemorate and memorialize the great heroes from that day. With me tonight, Straight out of Brooklyn, as always, is my partner, 21-year NYPD veteran, retired detective, Phil Grimaldi, who's going to introduce our guest for you tonight. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thanks, Bill. And uh, yeah, we have uh, a friend of mine, a, a person I've known for probably about 25, 30 years. Uh, he was a, uh, a New York City housing cop. He was oh, He's actually straight out of Brooklyn as well, so... Uh, Look out, because he's got that Brooklyn accent, too. Anyway, he, he uh, came on the job in uh, 1985 in uh, the housing police, and he was patrolling the projects in PSA 3, which covered Bedford, Syverson, Brooklyn, Bushwick, Brooklyn, Red Hook, and Fort Greene. Real tough areas for the housing projects back in those days. They're probably a little bit uh, nice in those neighborhoods now, but uh, that was tough times. Uh, in 1991, he rolled over to the fire department where he uh, landed at his home, Engine 205, Ladder 118. It's uh, Fort Greene, uh, Brooklyn Heights area. And then on the uh, on the day that we're going to commemorate tonight, 9-11-2001, uh, uh, John was uh, at Ground Zero. He spent about nine months down there. Uh, he lost eight firefighters from his firehouse, and it's uh, it's just a touching, uh, very very uh, sensitive. Uh, the minute that we see any pictures or stuff like that, we always get knots in our stomach around this time of the year. But we'll get into that. And uh, around 2007, John developed uh, some illnesses from 9/11 as well. But uh, in 2002, he uh, became involved in a charity called Friends of the Firefighters. Uh, one of the people on the board is Steve Buscemi. Uh, he's continued his charity work with them. Uh, he also uh, retired from uh, from the fire department in 2010. And then in 2019, the photo on your screen, you see Pete Davidson, you see Bill Byrd, uh, Tom, uh, Dominic Lombardozzi, and you see Steve Buscemi. And I believe that's John's wife in the middle. Is that your wife, John? You are correct, Phil. Okay, good. Well, uh, John had the uh, the pleasure to work on that uh, on that film, and he played Captain Palazzo of the Firehouse, as well as he was a uh, technical consultant. Now, I want you to know that when we asked John to uh, send us a, a short bio, he's a, a very uh, modest guy. He sent me two sentences, so I had to brush it up a little bit. But John, John Sorrentino, welcome to the Firehouse. I mean, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you for having me, guys. It's my pleasure to be here. Phil, if this was a firehouse, I would expect some good food to be delivered to us, you know? You got that. Oh, yeah. John knows about that. John certainly knows about that. So, John, tell us about the movie you were in, since I, I'm going to put some of the pictures up on the screen. Uh, some of our fans, uh, subscribers, fans, whatever, they'd love to uh, hear a little bit about that. The whole movie uh, experience really started because I'm 
Pete Davidson's father, Scott, he worked in my firehouse. So we were we were good friends. And Pete's father was one of the guys from my house that died on 9-11. So I know the Davidson family, you know, I know Pete since he was born. Um, in February of 2019, Pete sent me a text and he, a few other guys, old timers that used to work with his father. He said, I'm uh, making a movie with Judd Apatow. And there's, uh, it's a little bit about the New York City Fire Department. So he wanted to meet some firemen, tell stories about his old man and uh, find out how the fire department operates. So I gathered up four or five old friends and we met Pete, Bill Burr, Judd Apatow, uh, Barry Mandel, he was the producer. We met at a diner in downtown Brooklyn for a couple of hours and we just swapped stories about Pete's father. We talked about the fire department. You know, we, we were just shooting the shit. We had a real good time. And um, afterwards we took him to our firehouse and told him about 9-11. And I thought that would be the end of it. But then uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks, I kept getting phone calls from Barry Mandel, who was the producer. Uh, he had questions about the fire department, you know, basic stuff. Uh, what are your tours like? Uh, what's the difference between an engine and a ladder? You know, basic things that any fireman knows, but they really didn't have uh, any clue. So between phone calls and emails after a couple of weeks, Barry called me up. He said, listen, Judd would like to know if you'd like to be a consultant on the movie. Since we're bothering you so much, we might as well pay you to do it. So I said, sure, no problem. So I became a consultant and it was all behind the scenes stuff, you know, helping them develop scenes that anything had to do with the, with the, uh, with the fire department in this quick scene in the movie where we fight a fire. I got to coordinate that whole scene, uh, really interesting stuff. And then when it came time, they were casting for firehouse members, Barry, the producer called me up and he said, you know, we, can you send me some pictures of guys in firehouses? We want to know what a typical firehouse looks like, you know? Short, tall, white, black, man, woman, whatever it is. You know, we're we're a mixture. Uh, I sent them some pictures, and then I and I called them. I said, "Listen, as as long as you're casting for firemen, I said, is there any chance I could audition for a role?" I said, "I I don't know how to act. I've never done it before, but I could play a fireman. You know, I did it for 25 years. I should be able to figure that out." So I didn't ask any favors. Uh, I just he said, "Okay." He set up an audition for me. I went for an audition with the casting director. Uh, had four pages of dialogue that I had to memorize, so I. I did that with her. She said, okay, very good. Nice job. I'll forward your tape. The very next day, I get a phone call from her again. She said, the director saw your tape. He liked it. Can you come back in and read with Pete Davidson? I was like, yeah, sure. So two days later, I'm, I'm back in Manhattan and uh, for my second audition. And uh, when, my, when my time comes, they call me. I go in the room and Pete didn't know I was coming because I didn't say anything because I didn't want any favors. You know, I didn't want to put him on the spot. So he found it very funny that I was in there trying to audition for a role. So when we were uh -huh. doing the scene together, he couldn't stop laughing. You know, not that I'm being funny, but he just found it hilarious that it was me talking to him. And he was kind of blowing it for me. You know, he was like, I'm so sorry. I'm messing this up for you. You're doing fine. <laughs> but we got through the scene and then Judd Apatow, he said, listen, he goes, John, he goes, you're a fine. And do the scene again, but say it any way you want to say it. You don't have to follow the script. Just make it sound like a fine and would say it. So I improvised it and I just went off on a tangent and I, whatever I said must have worked because they hired me and I ended up not only being a consultant, I ended up being one of the firemen in, in, a, in the firehouse for the movie. That's fantastic. You know, one of the things that uh, I don't know if people really understand that a non-fireman, non-police, they don't fully understand the camaraderie and that whole thing of that not leaving anyone behind and, you know, being that brotherhood. And it's true on the police department too, but I think it's maybe even 
stronger on the fire department because you guys like li actually live with each other. You know, yeah, you I, I can tell because I did both jobs and on the police, from my experience, the police department, you know, you're real tight with the guys you work with. I mean, you know, more, you know, everybody, you see everybody, but you kind of work with a smaller crew. You don't work, you're not working with the entire precinct most of the time, but you're tight with the guys. And, you know, if you do play softball or whatever, you go out drinking after a night or whatever it is. Uh, but on the fire department, like you said, we live together. And right. we were together 24 hours a day. You know, when we weren't working, same thing. We were doing a lot of extracurricular activities. But we knew guys' wives. We watched their kids grow up. And it really is a brotherhood. And that whole movie crew, they kind of got to experience a little of it because we shot in a firehouse for two weeks. We shot in a firehouse in Staten Island. And um, so they got a taste of it, hanging out. You know, not only myself, there were three other uh, active firefighters portraying firefighters in the movie. Steve Buscemi was a fireman for four years back in the 80s. And right. all the guys who were working in the firehouse while we were filming. So the, so the, that whole Hollywood cast, you know, that crew, they got a taste of, of how close we actually are. Norma Thomas, thank you so much for the 1999 Super Chat. And if you, you love firemen that much, I'll bring one on every, every week if you want. <laughs> John's already got a fan club. I don't believe that, that's like, I mean, you know, it's, it's always like they always love firemen more than cops. Like, what are we doing wrong? You know, it's yeah. like, uh, you want to, I guess, you know, because you, know you put out fires. <laughs> the difference is when, when someone calls the cops, somebody there doesn't want you there. Yeah, that's right. Someone's that's not right. happy to see you. When someone calls the fire department, they open the door for us and, you know, and, yeah. and they you help know. you carry the hoses into the project. Yeah, that's right. Different. You know, 100%, yeah. even that whole expression, you know, uh, putting out fires became metaphorical for solving problems too, right? Right. Not just literally putting out fires, but solving problems. People would say to me at work, what are you doing? I'm just putting out fires today, you know? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it just became a metaphor. So you guys, you guys, uh, oh, Irish gal, thank you so much. For the 199 super chat, and you love firemen too. You have to rub it in, right, Irish girl? <laughs> I don't know what's going on between okay. Joe Murray and Dave Rader. They got their fan club. Oh, now Joe Valentino's got a fan club. We're getting left in the dark. Uh, I, you know, I don't left in the dust here, Bill. I, I think I have the least fans, Phil. You got your own little fan club too. The Joe Pesci lookalike fans that love you. <laughs> you know. They're all over. They're coming from all over the world. They're saying he sounds so much like Joe Pesci, you know. Gisela thinks that I'm uh, like Robert De Niro. She said, "I, I think I saw that. I think she said that she, when you went to it, when uh, you were on her show, she was saying that she <laughs> thought I was uh, Robert De Niro." But eh, it is what it is. I guess it's the New York accent, you know. That's that's what it is. You know, John, it's it's such a um, great thing you do in this movie and things you've done post being a fireman and stuff. But tonight we have to sort of. Uh, memorialize the 9-11 uh, thing. And and I know it's a painful thing for all of us to talk about, all three of us here, uh, when 9-11 first responders, you probably even more painful because you lost, uh, I believe, eight friends that there were well, more than that, but personally that worked in your firehouse. Uh, eight, eight guys from my firehouse and probably about 60 guys that I knew, you know, personally throughout the job. You know, it, it, it's amazing, like, even some people sometimes would say to me, D 
do you know so and i'm like listen before you get into that do you know just realize there's 36,000 cops you know and then yeah. when i do know the guy i'm like oh, it's like amazing i go oh, yeah i know that guy right. you know, yeah. or, or if they say the name murphy or kelly or whatever there's 4,000 murphys on the police department there's you know 3,000 kellys it's like uh it's crazy i'm sure the same thing with the fire department it's a big time irish job probably a lot of italian guys on that job because the whole thing going down in the earliest century of pushing Irish immigrants and Italian immigrants for civil service. And it's, it's carried on for years. Oh, definitely. But it, it's, it's changing. Uh, you know, the, 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 you know, the city with all city jobs, they're, they're trying to make it more diversified. So the, the job has been changing over the years. No, hundred percent. John, do you know how many firefighters there were active on nine 11 approximate number? I guess at any given time, I'm going to say there's probably around 10,000 active, you know, firefighters. Okay. I mean, and on that day, they lost 343 guys. I mean, that was just so incredible. It was heartbreaking. And I mean, the, the NYPD lost like 23, the, the Port Authority police lost like 40 and the fire department took the heaviest hit. I mean, they were all in the buildings and stuff and uh, just horrible. I mean, I'm just trying to get an idea of that's almost like, you know, it's maybe close to like five percent of the fire department was killed on that day. I mean, it's it's crazy. You know, if it was if it was ten thousand members, yeah, uh, it was close to five percent. I mean, you know, there, there was just a great story uh, about some of the kids of the firefighters that died that day themselves going on the uh, FDNY. Yeah, yeah and that's the New York Post, and uh, actually, yeah, two of two of the guys in that story are sons of two of the guys from my firehouse who passed away on 9-11. Wow, that's wow. amazing. Wow. It's amazing to want to follow in the footsteps after such a tragic thing. But you know what? I get it. I understand it. You know, it, well, uh, look, look at how many uh, how many young people joined the military after 9-11. Absolutely. That, that, that whole uh, pride in our country, you know, everyone got stepped up in it. You know, on, yeah. too bad we don't, we don't still have that pride in our country. But uh, yeah. a lot of people joined the military after that. And so you'd expect a lot of a lot of these uh, sons and daughters of firemen and cops to want to follow in their parents' footsteps. There was the football player Tillman that uh, he turned away a tremendous contract to go join the military, and he was unfortunately yeah. killed. Yep, Un unbelievable. Now, someone mentioned um, uh, Captain Timothy Stackpole uh, in the chat, and his brother worked with me in street crime. Uh, oh, so really? They, yeah, a family that was uh, in. Civil service, and I know Timothy Stackpole had gotten hurt prior to 9/11. Almost could have yeah. got three quarters, and he didn't get off. He came back. You know, he got so. burnt. He got burnt very bad in a fire. Yeah, but he was so dedicated, and he loved his job so much that he would not retire. And uh, actually, Timothy Stackpole was working at headquarters with um, Marty Egan. He was he was our lieutenant, and he got promoted to captain a couple of weeks before 9/11. And he was at headquarters also that morning, and him and him and Stackpole drove down to Ground Zero together, and they both got killed. Wow, that's. Uh, you know, I'm just going to share. I'm going to share the screen for a second, just to give everyone just an idea. And I know this is a horrible video, but I, I want to show it just so we can bring us back to that day 20 years ago. And uh, I'm going to put it on the screen and and, and play it.
that don't give you the chills nothing well i think you know the people that aren't from new york that uh, didn't experience that day they get a, a feel from that to see from the ground level of what it was like and you know when you see the police and the fire department running towards those that that horror and everyone's running away it gives you the sense of heroism absolutely i mean that's that's what that's what we do that's what we're trained to do right i mean uh you know you guys are on the police department you know any given second uh things could go south i mean you're, you're living it you know from the from the beginning of tour to the end of your tour at least with that's how i always felt and on our, and on our job it was you know you you could earn a year's salary in 10 minutes you know you you, you know you might do nothing all day long then all of a sudden 10 minutes later you, you know you're in hell but that's what we're trained to do. You know, the, sa the same is really true with the police department. You know, you could be sitting in your car eating a coffee and, and a donut. I'll use that stereotype. Although I know cops don't eat donuts. I know that firsthand. How about a coffee <laughs> but, and a cannoli? I want uh, a cannoli. Oh, if you're in Little Italy, you get a cannoli. You get a yeah. coffee and a cannoli. But, uh, you know, and then things can go bad real fast. Whereas, you know, you just, I know Mark DeMeo does a, 
a comedy skit where he's in a radio car drinking coffee and a ham making cheese and a heavy duty job goes on and he goes, no one's throwing that coffee out the window. That coffee costs $3.50. You're putting the top on, you're wrapping up your bacon, egg, and cheese, and then you go in there slow once you have it all wrapped up. You know, on TV, they throw it out the window. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, John brought up a really good point, how we're trained and, and we just know we're doing it. And on 9-11, I was fortunate enough to be at home when the buildings were hit and, and then the uh, eventual collapse. But... I, I had to leave. I had to get down there. And I knew I was going from the minute I saw it. And I had a struggle with my wife because, you know, at the time I had two small children running around, you know, toddlers in the house. And we're watching this on TV. And she's like, you can't leave me. You're not leaving. I, I said, no, I'm going, you know. And she was hysterical. It took me about 10 minutes to convince her. I promised I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back. I'll come back in one piece. I gave her my word. And I was fortunate enough that I did, but uh, I knew I was going there I, from the minute I was watching it. You know, she, she actually woke me up when the first plane hit. She said, I don't know, something happened. And next thing you know, uh, everything unfolded. But I knew I was going down there no matter what. And I think, you know, God had me in a place that I wasn't able to get down there before the collapse, thank God. And because I probably would have been, you know, right there helping somebody. And I don't know if I had have gone into the buildings. I mean, that was more of a fireman's thing, it seemed like. You know, I wasn't ESU or anything like that. But, uh yeah, the, the, I knew, you know, and if it happened tomorrow, God forbid, I would get right down there too again. You know, I would do it all over again. Well, you, you could think about how many off-duty firefighters were killed that day because um, the way our tours work, your day tour is 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Your night tour is 6 p.m. to 9 a.m. So that covers the whole 24 hours. So the first plane hit at uh, 8.46 so in, the, in all the firehouses across the city, you had guys who were just getting off work who were working the night before, plus the guys who came in to start the day tour. So you had a double amount of guys in every firehouse. It was in between shifts. So when the planes hit and fire trucks started going down, there were off-duty guys jumping on the rigs with the guys who were on duty and other guys jumping in their private vehicles, you know, going down there. And like I said before, Stackpole and Egan, they were at headquarters and they drove down there. And a, a lot of a lot of guys, you know, died who, who weren't even uh, working that day. You know, John, that was also when you think about it from an accountability point of view, that was why it was very difficult to know who actually was down there. Because guys, firemen responded from their home and didn't stop in at a firehouse to check in. They just went straight there. Well, and I don't know what your procedure, like the police department does rosters and stuff like that. But very well, people could have not even gotten on a roster, right? There was there was no playbook for this. They did a, they did a, a recall. I don't know if they did it with the police department, but they did it with the fire department. It went out over the television stations, the radio. All off-duty members report to your firehouse. I, you know, I was... I heard about all this stuff at a later date, but um, they really didn't have, there was no game plan for this. You know, obviously, I mean, look, look what happened. They set up their command post in the lobby of uh, one of the towers. I don't remember which right, one. Right. Now you had these chiefs who were like uh, the foremost experts in building collapse, building construction, you know, anything like that in the world, these guys. So they didn't think those towers were coming down, obviously, although they were set up in a in the lobby of the building. And then with, you know, so many guys just showing up and no one knowing where anybody was, 
uh, it made it very difficult. I can remember the first couple of days afterwards, there was a list of about five, 600 names on it that they thought guys who might've died because they just didn't know who was working, who wasn't working. Hey, I haven't uh -huh. seen this guy in two days. You know, so-and-so might've was on vacation and nobody knew it. It was, it was the first couple of days for sure. It was chaos. Nobody knew what they were doing. You know, I mean, I can remember, uh, uh, on September 12th. I mean, I, I think I went back to the firehouse like at midnight on the 11th just to take a shower and early in the morning we went back and we were going up to Chiefs. What are we doing? What, what would you like us to do? Is, is there any plan for this? And they were, you know, every, no one had an, no one had an answer. So we, we were, you were on your own. You know, uh, one of the pictures I think I sent you was the, um, the sphere. That was the, uh, the that that big sphere. It was it was in the courtyard, in between the two towers. I think there was a like a, a waterfall feature, and that was, sphere was in the middle. And on the morning of the twelfth, myself and uh, two other guys from my firehouse. If uh, if you keep going, there you go. No, keep going. No, nope, maybe the next one. That one. See that that's that's the sphere. That round thing. Okay. That was that was right in the middle of the courtyard, between the two towers. So on the on the morning of the twelfth. Myself and two and uh, two other guys, we 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 were able to stretch a hose line all the way through all that wreckage to get to that sphere, and we were actually operating off the sphere because those fires were burning for for weeks and months afterwards. I and, know, and I remember that. Yeah. Be very careful. I mean, you know, either heat was coming up and you didn't know it. You know, I mean, you know, like you were walking into an inferno, and there were a lot of pockets of fire. So we were able to operate right from that sphere. And we were, we were, you know, we putting out small pockets of fire. Then we would crawl into these valleys and, and you know, check for people. And uh, we did that for like that whole day on September 12th. But there wasn't a chief on the job who told us to do that. We just took it upon ourselves. I mean, you know, it was, you know, you, you, you had to come up with an initiative because I wasn't one of those bucket line guys. I just, uh, I could not stand there in that line and just keep passing buckets. I couldn't do it. So we found other things to do. You know, John, I had, um, I mean, all of us worked on the pilot uh, numerous times. And um, I was told by a guy who was like a mountain climber. There was a guy, remember there was a famous guy at Ground Zero. They called him the Mole. He was really I, I, small. I remember. The heard of him? I remember well, the he was also a mountain climber. And him and this other guy who was a detective, I think, from the 6-7 squad, they climbed down into the guts of the World Trade Center to look for survivors. Yeah. And they said there were entire rooms that were intact, which yeah. I found like incredible, like voids, but they found absolutely not one person alive. Below the World Trade Center was like a small city under there. You know, the yeah. subway there, there was a lot of restaurants, shopping. There was a couple of levels of buildings. So that's what we were hoping for, you know, because, you know, obviously for the first couple of days, we were hoping and praying that we were going to find people alive. And honestly, I think, I think the only people who survived the actual collapse was there was a, a group of firemen in a stairwell where they were carrying down a woman and the building collapsed and, for, and somehow that stairwell remained intact and they were maybe on the fourth floor on their way down and they all survived. And I think later that afternoon, they pulled some other guy out of the rubble. And I think there was a couple of Port Authority cops that were trapped, right? I think they even made a movie about that. Yeah, but yeah. other than that, you heard a lot of stories of... Oh yeah, this guy rode the collapse down eighty stories, and he ended up out in the street. You know that was all nonsense. Nobody, nobody survived that. But that's what we were thinking about underground. We, you know, we got we got down there. 
pretty good too. And there was nothing, there was nothing down there. But there was, um, we, Phil, we talked about this not too long ago. There was a, a, a it might have been, it was like, the, you know, you saw those buildings pancake collapse and they were squished. But there was maybe two stories that you could, if you climbed over enough stuff, you, you can get into the building. And, you know, we got into one office and it was amazing because the guy's desk, everything on his desk was still there, his chair. I mean, if, if whoever was in that office would have sat in that chair, they would have survived the collapse. It was crazy. Unbelievable. I think the crazy. thing you were talking about, John, is uh, I was on West Street. It was probably maybe a weekend over by where the Marriott was. And there was a piece of the building that was kind of tilted and it looked like a, a good section of the building. And I was just staring at it. I didn't even know what I was looking at. And somebody came over to me, I believe it was a fireman. And he said, do you know what you're looking at? And I said, no. And he goes, that's nine floors. And I said, what do you mean? It's not, it looked like one solid piece. It was probably about, I don't know, maybe uh, 25 feet up in the air. And he goes, no, look, and there were lines. And what happened was the, the concrete floors that were, I guess, about 18 inches uh, wide, when they pancaked down, they just, they like became one, but you could see the lines. And, and I think it was either seven or nine floors, he was telling me. And I just couldn't really absorb what I was seeing. You know, it was a, it was a nine floors of the building and it was just there, you know, and it came down and I don't know which part of, you know, maybe it was floor 10, 11, 12, or up to, you know, whatever it is, or it could have been, you know, uh, 91, 92, 93. I don't even know what it was, but uh, just obviously nothing could have survived that. And uh, and then also in that spot, they uh, they took out. There was a crushed. Um, it was a fire. Uh, it was a fire. Uh, the bosses. What do they call that? The chauffeur's car, John. What the the b battalion? Yeah, it was. It was. It was. It wasn't a fire truck. It was just a, an emergency vehicle, and it was all it was all crushed to smithereens, you know, and. Uh, just really, and then you were talking about the, the fires. I was, I remember walking from everybody walking on the pile. It actually almost made like from their, you know, from their feet stamping down on all the debris. It made like little roads, and I was walking on it, and you would see like smoke just billowing out of the different areas from the fires that were burning underneath. You know, yeah, and we, I we remember the Deutsche yeah. Bank building. I would stand over by the Deutsche Bank building, and it was a firehouse like a few doors down from there. And I was looking down from the top of the pile down into the lobby of the Deutsche Bank building. And the lobby's got to be about two or three stories. So that's how high up the pile was where I was at, at that particular moment, you know. Open yeah. minds. Thank you so much for the $10 super chat. We're going to go to a uh, quick commercial uh, between. And, John, if you have to go to the bathroom or whatever you got to do, do it now. Uh, the other thing is, folks, this is a 20-year anniversary of 9-11. And rather than celebrating this, we're trying to memorialize it with as much respect uh, to the folks that responded and those that lost their lives as we possibly can. And we really thank you guys for listening in. And this was a reality for pretty much every fire fireman in New York City back in 2001 and every cop in New York City. And these memories aren't pleasant for us, but we, we like to re report this to memorialize the folks that uh, responded and who gave their lives that day. Billy, I'm going to pull up your. Uh... Go ahead, Bill. Are you tired of the same old surroundings? Are you looking to relocate or are you just in need of a real estate agent in the Myrtle Beach, South Carolina area? 
Well, Carol Waters is your girl. Her and her husband, Rob Mahan, who's a retired member of the NYPD and the New York Fire Department, they're both million-dollar sales agents. Carol and her husband, Rob, can be reached at 914-261-6681. That's 914-261-6681. Or you can email her at carolwaterssellsmb at gmail.com, carolwaterssellsmb at gmail.com. One of our clients was quoted as saying, she always goes the extra mile. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Boy, Joe, we're uh, praying for you to get better. We uh, we had a good report that you're doing a little better today. Keep up the good work. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he also has... 15 years experience as a member of the NYPD. He knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. That's jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702, 646-838-1702. Or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com, joe at jmurray-law.com. Folks, Police Coffee is an officer-owned business dedicated to catching the finest coffees and blends. They will provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant. And our specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Our coffee is some of the best you'll find, but it also helps to serve an important cause, giving back to our community. 50% of our profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. To order coffee and related products from policecoffee.com, go to the website. There are over seven types of coffee to choose from. 50% of the profits go to officers' families in need. For a 10% discount, use code OTC10. That's off-the-cuff 10. I personally bought this coffee. It's fantastic. I'm going to reorder it as soon as I uh, use it all up. I haven't used it all up yet, but it's as good as any coffee I've ever had. If you're looking for supplements, be sure to check out the products from firstdonutrition.com. As first responders, there are certain expectations on our performance on the job. We train hard and drill often to be able to perform at our best when duty calls. Whether it's hoofing over 100 pounds of gear or engaging in a spontaneous foot chase, we work out like our life depends on it because it does. Two New York City firemen created the supplement line with hand-picked products that will not pop positive on any drug test for first responders. Solid pre-workout products will give you a good pump and a short-term strength boost that can help you power through your workout. Supplements that help with fat burning and weight loss and post-workout formulas that support recovery. Go to firstdonutrition.com. Use code off the cuff to get 10% off your order. John, we're going to get into, uh, I, you had, you were from that famous firehouse that, um, it was known as um, Engine 205, Ladder 118. And we mentioned before the, the, the dubious distinction of eight members of your firehouse were killed during 9-11. But there was a, a famous picture of them, I believe, crossing the Brooklyn Bridge in the, in the fire engine. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, and that that became like almost an iconic photograph that day. And I, I didn't find it, but uh, I think this is the Daily News. Right. Um, that's the cover of the Daily News. I think that's October 5th, 2001. I, I sent you the, the actual color picture, too. I don't know if, if you if you have it. 
That's our firehouse door. That door is actually hanging in the museum, the 9-11 museum right now. Um, okay, I, I don't know. I mean, this is just the, I don't know if it was the funeral or. For a second at that picture, that picture is from, we had a firehouse memorial service uh, October 11, 2001. We had one memorial service for all eight guys who died. And you see me saluting in the background of that picture. If you go back to that other picture, Bill. Sure. Um, I'm sorry. Oh, I, I, I'll get it. Screwed it up. Sorry. That's all right. Not that one. Oh, I'm not seeing it right now. Was that uh, oh. was that Pete? Yeah, there that, you go. Yeah, that's that's me. So you know, that's me in uniform, and that's Pete Davidson in that photo right there. That's Pete's uncle holding him. So uh, it's crazy how life intertwines with itself, right? Yeah, but well, anyway, he was. Yeah, he was. Well, obviously, that's twenty years ago. So I don't was, know what he was, age seven, he was. He was seven years old. Seven years old. Yeah, and he also. Uh, uh, Scott also had a four-year-old uh, girl, Casey, too, at the time. But that picture you're referring to, the cover of the Daily News, uh, the story behind that is uh, there was a guy named Aaron. Uh, he was in Brooklyn with, you know, with Stone's Throw from Manhattan. He was on a on the roof of a building, and he was just taking pictures that morning. So a couple of weeks after 9-11, he came by the firehouse, and I just happened to be there, and he handed me the photo. He goes, he goes I'm not sure. He goes, but this might be your fire truck. So we had to get our magnifying glasses and double check because we have a we have a toolbox that we made for ourselves that that's attached to the outside of the fire truck. So we knew it was ours. So if you look at that photo, that's ladder one eighteen going over to Brooklyn Bridge. You see the towers burning in the background, and and those six guys, uh, you know, are driving to their deaths basically. So that became an iconic photo, and uh, it's really. That photo is a symbolism of the bravery of of all the first responders who were there that day. That's you know that's it, incredible. That's an incredible, like you said, an iconic photo. Totally, totally incredible. How they were looking at that those buildings burning and uh, knew when they were going in. They had uh, they, they didn't know. I mean, I guess the whole thing was so unprecedented and uh, no, like you said earlier, nobody knew what to do. There was really no uh, no playbook on something like this. But uh, I guess everybody just tried to do their best, you know. Yeah, I think the hard part was, uh, like I said before, I don't think at that time anybody really thought those buildings were going to collapse. But also, in all the firemen minds, at least, you really there was no way to put those fires out because the sprinkler systems were destroyed when the planes crashed. Uh, there's a standpipe system for people who don't know. It's, a, it's basically hollow pipes that go from the ground floor up to the roof, and it's a city-fed water main. So you'll see them in stairwells, all those pipes. So we can go into a stairwell on any floor and hook up our hoses, and we got water. Those standpipes were destroyed. So that, you know, you can't, how are you getting water up 70, 80 flights of stairs? Those fires were really going to have to burn yeah. themselves yeah, so, right. you know, it was just, a, 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 you know, the whole day was just truly chaotic and frustrating. There wasn't much we, you know, like I said, we all went in there to do what we could, but. That's crazy. Uno who, thank you so much for the 1999 Super Chat. She quotes, you are all true warriors. Thank you so much, Uno. Thank who. you, Uno. And thank we you. also um, just want to really salute all the families that lost loved ones on that day. And, you know, not just. I mean, look, the first responders, of course, 
they were running in when others were running out. But there's people that deserve kudos in their family just for going to work that day and doing what a good citizen does, going to work. And they and they lost their lives. Who who ex, you know expected terrorists to use our you know commercial airlines basically as bombs to take down these buildings? You know, it's just um, just a horrendous thing. And, and you know, and the word. Everyone heard this word before and after the surreal. That's how everyone described it. Was it 100%. didn't seem real at all, right? When you're walking down there, and but you know what? I just want to mention some of the good things about it. if there was any uh, light at the end of the tunnel it was that the camaraderie and the respect that the citizenry had, both for the FDNY and for the NYPD and the Port Authority police and uh, EMS. And the court officers, all, all the first responders that went down there, it was sort of a good feeling that how the city felt about you, maybe for about three weeks, then they went back to hating you again. <laughs> you know? Well, I can remember, um, you know, everyone wanted to help. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I had, you know, friends and relatives begging me to get me into Ground Zero so I could help out, you know, which wasn't going to happen. But you know, you had people lined up in the streets all over the area near Ground Zero. And, you know, you spend 15 hours in that pit and then come out of there. And now you're walking down the street, you know, heading to the subway to, you know, to get back to the firehouse. And people are just clapping for you. And, uh, you know, that was, uh, I think, you know, people who uh, who wanted to get involved, who didn't know what to do. The people who went down there and was just cheering on all the first responders that were working down there, that was their way of, of helping out. So it was really, you know, that, and that meant a lot. That was really, that's something that kept us going. And uh, you know, for, uh, for sure, you know, that was for sure that, that, that really did help a lot because it was a lonely feeling. Um, I'm sure if, uh, going into those buildings, working the pile. I mean, uh, people were just uh, like sort of mesmerized by the her- heroism of, of cops and firemen and all the people that, we're trying to recover. And literally, firemen had relatives, brothers, uh, uh, you know, family members that they were yeah. searching for. There were, there were guys who who carried um, Vigiano, was his name? I can't remember. Yes. Well, Joe Vigiano and his brother. One was a cop and one was a fireman. Yeah. Right? They both, yep. you know, they both died. He was, you know, I, I think he got to carry them out. Um yeah, the, fa- I mean, the father uh, was was searching for his sons. He was retired. The father was a retired fireman. And yep. Joe Vigiano was an ESU cop, and the brother was a fireman. They were both killed on that day. I actually got promoted with Joe in uh, April of 2001. I got uh, promoted to second grade, and, and uh, Joe got second grade as well. And he was in uniform. We were like, who is this guy? You know. And then when we heard the backstory. Uh, he was really a hero. He had been several shootouts. He had combat crosses. He had been shot. And when when uh, when Kerrick became the police commissioner, uh, he wanted to go to emergency service. So Kerrick put him there. Had worked with him in uh, and knew he had been in these shootouts. He worked in the seven five and stuff. And uh, and Joe, uh, unfortunately, uh, he had he had the day we, he got promoted on April. It was April twelfth, two thousand and one. There was a video team that was following him. They were doing a documentary on his life. And unfortunately, he perished on 9-11 along with his brother. And uh, I believe his father was there when they carried the bodies out. Is that what you were referring yeah. to, John? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was down there every day because he wanted to be there when his sons were found. 
Yeah. It was funny because when, when I got promoted, Kerrick would bring, like they would do a, a promotion of second grade and first grade detectives. He would like, was 20 guys that you'd have to go to his office and he would meet with you and he'd just like shoot the shit with you a little bit. So now there's all these detectives. I've been in the bureau already about 11, 12 years. And here's this guy in emergency service in uniform. So, I mean, I didn't really think it, but he said it to me afterwards. He's like, yeah, you guys are all looking at me like, uh, you know, cause a few, it was a few days before the ceremony, but at the ceremony, Carrick called him out and made him get a standing ovation from everybody in the room. They mentioned a few names. They, they even mentioned my name cause I had a combat course. They mentioned all the names of high, uh, high metal, uh, uh, people that uh, get, uh, got high medals in, uh, in the police department. And, th- and he goes, but now I'm going to tell you about Joe Vigiano when he shot off all the things that he accomplished in his career. And, you know, the whole room just, he stood up in the whole room, just gave him applause. And he came over. I'll never forget. He came over because, yeah, you were looking at me that day like, hey, who's this ESU guy getting great, mm-hmm. you know? But, uh, but yeah, I think he got shot twice, if I'm not mistaken. And unfortunately, he, he perished. But uh, those are true heroes. Those are oh, true absolutely. heroes. And you know, I was you know, honored to be promoted to grade on that day with him. It was just an honor. I'll never forget it. You know, Uno Who asks, what will it take to bring us together now, I wonder? And, you know, that's as good a guess, uh, you know, that's a good question, but it does seem like our country is fractured right now into different sort of factions. And uh, we saw, of course, what just happened in Afghanistan, and that's heartbreaking for all of us 9-11 responders, knowing that, uh, you know, that we were there to try to prevent another terrorist attack, because that's like the training grounds for terrorists. And now that we left there. Not that I think we should nation build and stay there forever, but we know how, you know, terrorists come into this country. And uh, now it seems like the, the borders are open. And what will it take to bring us all together again? I don't know. Bill, I'm glad you brought that up because I got to say this. The same people that are out protesting for the last two years, those were the people that were standing on the West Side Highway. And I think, John, you touched on it a little bit. They were holding signs. I mean, legitimately Hookers were holding signs. You're our heroes. <laughs> and people that, you know, people that look like, you know, people of the night, uh, drug addicts, whatever, just people that you know wouldn't be cheering you on if it if that horrible thing didn't happen. And, and it was really, it was like, you know, you kind of felt good about it. I mean, there were American flags on it and on every car. And then about two months after the disaster, I'll never forget this. I had gone into the cleaners. And this young girl there, her name was Erica. I hope she's watching some way, somehow. But she was like 16 years old. And she looked at me when I was getting my clothes. And she caught me off guard. She goes, thank you. I go, thank you for what? Like, she's, no, I want to thank you. You're our heroes. She knew I was a cop. And I I was like taken back by it. I got choked up. This little 16-year-old kid is thanking me. You know, it was really, it it just made you feel good. The country did come together at that time. Right now, we're split. It's It's terrible. We don't want another tragedy to bring the country together. There should be other ways to do it. But uh, yeah, for a while there, the, the country we, we couldn't have, we couldn't have been more on the same page. You know, even the Dems and the poli- uh, and the Republicans, all the all the politicians were even together at a point. But then we we fractured off, and uh, we need something good, not a tragedy, to bring us together. You know, maybe some uh, some some term limits or uh, some good elections. You know, vote vote who you don't like out, and and try to vote somebody in that's good. You know. Well said, Phil. I, mean, I always said 9-11 was the, the worst of humanity followed by the best of humanity. Yeah. And that, and that got us through it. And unfortunately, it seems like in the history of our country, it seems to always be tragedy is what brings us together. 
And it yeah. sure would be nice if it was, you know, if we could all get on the same page for, for something good as opposed to something so tragic. 100%. Here's this is a 9-11 um, heroes run. Uh, San Antonio, Texas A&M University. Uh, someone just sent me that. I just thought it was interesting that folks are having these memorial runs and stuff in all parts of the country. People are not forgetting that. And uh, that's a great thing. Then there's that other one, the Tunnel to Towers, where I think the, uh, the head of that. Stella. Yeah, he's he was walking from, I think, Washington he, to Ground Zero on 9-11. He's oh, that's the brother. That's the brother that runs the it's foundation. Like a 40, that's the father. Yeah. The father so, is on the walk. So that's it, tremendous. That, isn't he it the started, brother? I think it's the father. Okay, okay. He started in Washington, D.C., and uh, I know he, he made it to uh, Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where, where, where uh, Flight 93 crashed. And I think he'll be back in New York the 9th or the 10th. And along the way, I've just seen it today, because along the way they had uh, ceremonies, parades, you know, whatever they could do. The Tunnels to Towers Foundation has raised a lot of money and helped a lot of people over the years. Th that, well, that you know, is the a other fantastic th charity, fantastic. The other they thing that we cops, firemen, they warriors. I'm sorry. No, the Go other ahead. thing I just I wanted to mention, and we mentioned it one of the other times, and not to be sour grapes, but John Stewart. I think we all have to take our hats off to him because he fought really hard for us to keep the 9/11 fund for the healthcare of the responders of many who are so deathly ill right now with cancers that they've never seen before. And he actually went to Congress to shame these politicians into voting for it. For And, and it's another five years. So every five years, they have to re-up re this bill. This should be forever, you know, for, I, for I lives. Think the lives. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead add, add another name to that, uh, John Stewart. Uh, also, John Field. Yeah. He was uh, just going to bring him up. And he lost part of his foot during 9-11. And he hooked up with John Stewart, and it's I think it's the the, the, the feel, feel good, good foundation. Yeah, feel good foundation. He, I know he, John. I met him he, a few times. Great guy. He was the man who kind of put all that together with John Stewart to yep. get all the cops and firemen who kept going down to Washington D.C. to you know to hound these politicians to wake them up. But I think now that 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 bill was passed, I don't think that five. Are they still, I don't think they do that no, five year thing. It's fun. It's funded it's until like 2080 yeah. or something like that. It's, yeah. Oh, right. it is. They, they did yeah. fund it for longer. Yeah. Okay, great. Oh, so they, that, so that was the last thing that they did. Washington for, for this, you know, beg beg for money to, you know, for, for people who are getting sick due to 9-11. Well, Crazy. if you remember, Lou Alvarez, who was in the bomb squad, he, his last few days of life on this earth, he went and testified with John Field and John Stewart, and that was the big push that they didn't want a five-year extension of the bill. They wanted it forever until everybody's off the earth that was affected by it. And I, I think it's like 2080 or something like that. The bill is good for to keep us, uh, you know, with the with the uh, the 911 screenings, the the World Trade Center right, program, right. you know, the annual screening, all the medications, and uh, so yeah, all of us are obviously uh, us three are all. Uh, part of that and uh that was a great thing but yeah lou alvarez what a warrior what a warrior he 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 struggled with that he would post every day on facebook and uh you know all of those guys big thank you to those guys the silla foundation john field john stewart i know gary sinise like uh raises a lot of money for the wounded warriors as well yeah he's amazing well, danny turner 
Bill Any and Phil, you? I met oh. Joe at, in 1998 at a FBI SWAT school at Camp Smith and Peace School. He's, he was one of the NYP's most decorated members at age 34. Right. His two oldest sons, Joseph and Jimmy, are now MOS serving with NYPD. What a legacy. Truly proud to have met and trained a few weeks with him. Never forget. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's what, something I left out. He was the most decorated police officer, I believe, on the day he got promoted with me. He was he was the most highly decorated cop on a job. He'd been in so many shootouts. But what were you going to say, John? We interrupted you a little there. Just what, what, uh, whatever we were just speaking about, if there's anyone out there, you know, cops, firemen, any first responders, anybody really who was affected uh, with their health due to 9-11, I hope you guys are going for your yearly medicals and, you know, following up with your doctors. I mean, you know, we talk about it once in a while, Phil, you know, I got several things wrong with me. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have a lot of friends who are sick and a lot of guys who died and you gotta, you gotta stay on top of it. You know, you gotta go to your doctors. You got, you, you gotta get your checkups. You no, know, John, I, I just, I just went today. Though, how, yeah, apropos, today. how apropos was that? But you know, the other thing I, I want to shout out to also, and they're not specifically first responders, but they were heroes nonetheless were the steel workers. Oh, they were just um, amazing. And they were the ones that moved and cut those big pillars of steel. And there, there's some, a lot of guys there really sick too, you know, and the, yeah, it's, the, the of people lost after post nine 11, uh, you know, not lost on that day are, are getting almost to the point of the same number of people that were killed. I believe the original number was like 2,700 and change people killed on nine 11 between Shanksville, the Pentagon and uh, ground zero. And the number is inching closer and closer to people are dying. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I talked about it before, right? I actually shaved my head a couple of weeks back for uh, a guy, Joe Ponzi, who, developed, uh, you know, non-smoker, developed lung cancer, and he was down there at Ground Zero, and they're pretty certain it was uh, tied to that. So, uh, yeah, good good point, John. Everybody's got it. It took me a few years. I, I was getting the paperwork and, like, started in 2003, and I had issues right from 2002, 2001. But I kept putting aside, putting aside, and then finally 2007 is when I started the screenings. And it probably saved me from – because my my breathing, my, a lot of my, uh, my ailments got better. So it was definitely the right move to go to the uh, World Trade Center screening. John, I'm going to put up the uh, the pictures of the, the eight. Yeah, that's that uh, picture right there, if you want to stop for one second. Those are the eight guys from my firehouse who uh, died on 9-11. And uh, we recovered six out of the eight. There's two guys, Leon Smith and Bobby Wallace, that uh, we never found their bodies. So it's, uh, you know, as horrible as this whole tragedy is, it's even that much more tragic for their families because, you know, we never recovered their bodies. They don't. They don't have a place to go. You know, John. You want to. You want to just actually, uh, in honor of them, just read their names. Well, that's uh, Vernon Cherry. He was. Uh, he was almost a thirty-year veteran. He was actually the official singer for the fire department. He sang uh, all the national anthems at, at all the events. Leon Smith, another guy. He had uh, over twenty years of service. Leon. We always said Leon was uh, holding up those towers. So everybody else could get out. He was a, a a mountain of a man, a sweetheart. Bobby Wallace was our lieutenant. Uh, he his tragic story was uh, he was on medical leave during September, and he fought with the doctors. He wanted to go back to work because that's the the craziness of our job. Everybody wants to work. You know, and, you never hear a cop do that. Yeah, well, <laughs> a cop gets three quarters. He's like, "Where's the door?" You know. <laughs> his first his first tour back was nine eleven. And uh, uh, 
Uh, Marty Egan, we talked about before. He was at headquarters. Bobby Regan, if you, um, I'll tell you guys, you know, a real quick story about the the guys on the bottom. Um, we Marty Egan was re, his, we recovered his body probably like the first week, and then Scotty Davidson maybe a couple of weeks later, and then nothing. We never recovered any more guys from our firehouse. But it wasn't until right around Christmas. Marty Egan's brother, Mark, who became a lieutenant, was assigned to Ground Zero. He called the, called the firehouse one day, and uh, I wasn't working, but I was, I, was, I was in there. And he called us up. He said, hey, we just found Vernon Cherry. So we were like, listen, don't, don't move him. We want to come down there. We want to carry him out. Because our firehouse, we were in lower, uh, you know, Brooklyn Heights, downtown Brooklyn. We're, we're at Ground Zero in five minutes. Right. So both fire trucks, uh, me and a couple other guys were off duty. We jumped on the fire trucks. We drove down to Ground Zero, and uh, when we got there, we were met by the the chief who was in charge of Ground Zero at the time. I won't mention his name, and he went ballistic on us. He goes, How, "You guys are working in Brooklyn. You just can't come here. What's wrong with you guys?" Started screaming at our captain, and our captain said, "Guys, go ahead, go do what you got to do. I'll I'll stand here and take the heat." And we were able to go into the pit and carry Vernon out, and uh, our captain caught some flack for that, but. After that day, the fire department changed their procedure and they started allowing companies to go out of service to go down to ground zero if, if someone from their firehouse was recovered so the guys from that company could carry their own member out. Because, I mean, that was like our main goal for us. We wanted to bring our guys back to their families and we wanted to be the ones carrying them out. We got to do that with, with you know, all of them except the two we didn't get. And a uh, quick story with Bobby Regan. I, I found his body. And he was still wearing, uh, he had a, I think it was a St. Christopher necklace on. And uh, I was going to take it so I make, so make sure his wife got it, but I didn't want someone, some stranger seeing me, hey, this guy just stole someone's necklace. So I put it in his shirt pocket and his, his next day his wife got his necklace back and she was, you know, had a very emotional conversation with her about that. So um, just... Eight, eight fantastic guys. Out of those eight guys, you're looking at, I think, 20 children who lost a father that day. Just, wow. just in that one photo. So, picture, you know, multiply that 343, and you know, plus yeah. all the, you know, that's that to bring the the tragedy. You know, make it it makes it very personal. But I I've been telling my 9/11 story for 20 years, and the the only reason I do it. And I'll talk about it to anybody. I mean, it bothers me to talk about it, but it's also like a therapy for me. But um, Joey Agnello, he had two very young children when he died. I think his son was maybe three or four, and his other son, I don't even think was a year old yet. And his wife came up to me one day, not long, you know, maybe a couple of months after 9-11. And she said, you know, when they get older, the only stories I'm going to be able to tell about their father and what he did on 9-11 are the stories that you're telling now, you know, all the the TV interviews you do in the newspaper articles, you know, she goes, I save all those things. So now, you know, now it's 20 years later. So, um, you know, I'm hoping that she amassed a nice collection for her kids to appreciate what their father did. And, and, you know, our saying never forget. And, uh, it's not just a, a saying we believe it, you know, so thank you for, for doing, you know, a, a night like tonight to just to remind people of uh, what, what happened that day. I think it's it's so important uh, to commemorate it, and I know there's a lot of there's almost like a a faction it seems of politicians that don't want to keep remembering this in the way that people demand to remember it. You know, 
Yeah, look, look at all, look at. I mean, if you can remember back to nine eleven, it was I think it was during Christmas time. Uh, I don't know who it was, but they were getting fed up that that it, that it was taking so long for the cleanup. You know, we were. Uh, I don't know how, how much time you guys spent down there, but they, they would set up areas and then and a crane would come and scoop up a bunch of debris and it would come and they would lay it in this one area and we would all just sift through it. And after we were done sifting through it, then another crane scooped it up and threw it in the dump trucks, drove it out to Great Kills, and then they went through it with a fine tooth comb out there. And uh, after I think, like I said, around Christmas time, whoever, whoever the powers that be were were getting frustrated and they started doing away with that, and they just started taking clumps of steel and just throwing it straight into the dump truck before we had a chance to go through it. And, you know, when you got all that metal, twisted cement, all that stuff, you don't know what body parts could be in there. And there was a big, I don't know if you guys remember, I mean, a couple of firemen got locked up. It, it, yeah, it I ended, remember that. Yeah. There were a few tussles, yeah. You know, like the cops were put in a bad position because, they, you know, they were told to keep us out. All of a sudden, they put a fence around the place and they were trying to control it. So, you know, that alone was was a, a horrible thing. Well, you know, John, we uh, they would throw a lot of the debris on barges and float it to fresh kills, and we would sift through it uh, at fresh kills, which was a, a pretty horrible detail to do because I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's like, uh, yeah. yeah, it's like the Adams family. There's like the, you see smoke coming out of water, you know, and you're like, what? The methane gas coming up through the ground, and it's probably yeah, that's, that's the most unhealthy, place. the unhealthy place you could be in the world, other than Ground Zero. You know, just probably yeah, as know. bad or worse. You know, but you're right; they recovered full bodies at Fresh Kills. Yeah. So yeah. the people that were rushing this uh, recovery, uh, you know, they didn't realize the emotion too for you guys, you know, trying to recover your brother fireman police for the same thing and you know and regular everyday citizens too it's like these are people that have families that are demanding closure and some of them you know i i dr hirsch who was the chief medical examiner back in 2001 charles hirsch he gave some amazing um lectures and he had lectured all over the world after 9 11 and i had heard at one time he gave a lecture to 1200 pathologists in uh, like Italy or somewhere, say it was, I don't know exactly what country it was. And after it was over, he got a standing ovation. But one of the things he said, which always bothered the family was that I hate to say this, but many of the bodies were vaporized and you're never, ever going to find them because yeah. there was never ever this kind of force falling in a downward motion for 110 stories that has never happened in the history of man. So That's a lot of people didn't want to hear that, but it, it was, an, in fact, a reality, you know. Yeah, bodies were either pulverized or also with those fires burning for months. If a lot of bodies probably just, you know, depending on where they were located in relationship to fires, were just incinerated and turned to ash yeah. over the course of, of weeks and months. I mean, I'm, I'm the liaison for one of the families uh, – you know, one of the families of the firehouse had a hard time dealing with this whole thing. So I was the liaison. I did all the stuff I could for them. I was the medical examiner go-between. And, you know, I, I still get calls. I got maybe two years ago was the last call I got that they recovered. Uh, they identified another body part of so-and-so. And, -so, and I mean, it could just be a, a bone chip or whatever it was. And 
And I actually just read an article the other day that there's they, there's a new form of DNA testing that's super, super successful. And now they're going to retest whatever they have because still about half the half the people who died were and I haven't been identified. And most of those remains are actually, for people who don't know, there's there's a morgue inside the museum at Ground that's Zero. Right. And that's, that's, where, right. that's where all the body parts are kept. I think there's like 1,200 parts or, or pieces that they, they never were able to identify. Yeah, that so, might be so, the pieces you're talking about. And I know the procedure at the morgue was they would um, they would photograph the body part, uh, they would X-ray it, and then they would take DNA from it. So it was a three-part procedure. But I remember one time they, they just put a foot on there that was inside a sneaker. And that's when I knew I was working at the morgue after Ground Zero to see something like that. And it was so, you know, I was I was in homicide too, and I worked in the two two three, so I'd seen a lot of murders, but I had never seen bodies in this condition in my entire life, and seeing body parts like that, and it was even sort of shocking to me, you know. Yeah, I mean, Bill, there, there there were things that I saw that, uh, you know. Uh, I'll never get them out of my head. I'll never, I'll never discuss them, but it's, it's heart, heartbreaking that it wasn't real. And I was thinking even this morning today, it was a beautiful sunny day, not a cloud in the sky. And every time it's one of those days, the first thing I think about is this is exactly the weather. on 9-11. Yeah, that's right. Not necessarily makes me sad or, or anything like that, but it, you know, it takes you right back to it. It brings you right back. Some days it bothers me all day. Some days I just think about it for a second. But today specifically, because I knew I was going to talk to you guys tonight, all of us, it was just that, it was that 9-11 day. And I can remember, you know, the beautiful morning. And I, and I can remember driving over the Brooklyn Bridge into lower Manhattan. And once you got into Manhattan, it was like entering the movie set of a sci-fi movie, you know, yeah. with yeah. dark eyes, couldn't see in front of your face. And then when you got actually to the pit, it was just... You know, you know all the pictures you put up and videos and whatever everybody's seen. It, it, it's it it still doesn't convey what it was really like unless you were there. Hundred no. percent. I I always say that, John. The the television coverage, uh, news coverage. If you were there, you understood it at a different level. It's the things you saw were horrible, but when you were there and the ground and the World Trade Center was at your feet, then you really saw it. And John, I, I think you we talked about a story that you had gotten a phone call. You were actually supposed to be working that day. You want to tell us about that real quick? I, uh, yeah, um, I, I I got off work the morning of September 10th, so I, I worked a 24-hour tour Sunday morning into Monday morning the 10th, and I got off work and. Uh, to this day, I can't tell you what I did on September 10th, where I was that day, that night. I, you know, your life before 9-11 and after 9-11 is almost like two different lives, at least for me anyway. And um, I got a, I, you know, uh, I, had a, I had a cell phone and I had my own apartment and I was uh, with someone at the time. And I was, I got a phone call that I didn't even know till about two weeks later. I, I came home and I checked my messages and it turned out I got a phone call at about 7.30 in the morning to come in to work overtime. And I never got the call because instead of calling my cell phone, like they usually do, they called my house phone and left me a message. So if I would, if they would have called my cell phone, I would have went into work and I wouldn't be here today talking to you guys. It was, so it was just on our job. Like I was saying before with our tours, it was, 
you know, we have a very flexible schedule on the fire department. You could take, you know, if you want a day off, you know, you could just get the body for a body. Hey, work for me today. I'll work for you tomorrow. So there were a lot of guys who died on 9-11 who weren't, you know, quote unquote, scheduled to work that day. And, uh, you know, and that's kind of like my story. If You know, if a phone call to the wrong phone saved me from working that morning, I would have been on that you, truck. You would have been on that truck going over the Brooklyn Bridge. It's amazing. And I'll tell you, even like other stories, Um, Danny Starr was the, the first fireman killed on 9-11. First casualty, yeah. Um, he, his fire company hooked up with my fire, the engine 205, the engine in my firehouse. And now both companies were going into one of the towers uh, and on their way in, uh, a jumper landed on Danny. And it oh, killed him instantly. But for the time it took now, you know, you're talking about two companies, you've got, you know, uh, 10 firemen, 10, 11 firemen. But at the time it took those guys to pick him up, to get him into an ambulance during that time, that tower collapsed. So, you know, Danny tragically died, but his death saved the life of 10, 11 other guys that they all would have died if they would have got into that tower. You know, folks, this is police off the cuff, real crime stories, and we're sort of um, not commemorating but memorializing this uh the 20 year anniversary of uh of 9-11 and um john sorrentino i mean you're a strong guy man to be able emotionally to be able to handle all the stuff that you you were put through on 9-11 even post 9-11 it's uh it's heartbreaking and uh i mean i i i did another show a while ago with um bob martin and we got all like choked up and he was reading like poems about uh, Moira Smith's daughter. And I was like, that was God, it, God. you know? And I was just like, and he's actually going to come on Thursday and he, he's going to, uh, he has the book out the 9-11, 20 years later. And we're going to do one more memorial show. And then I don't think I can do any more. It's uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty tough to do this, but I think it's really important to do this. And, um, I think it's really important that this city and this country never, ever, ever forget this. And when people move to try to make us stop memorializing, I just, I get crazy. You know, I think it's just so, so wrong. They have to let people continue to grieve. If that's what they want to do, they let them and sponsor. I remember a few years ago, Bloomberg didn't want the the, the names read anymore of the, of the people that died. And I think the family members went, uh, well, wasn't it, wasn't it last year? I think it was last year that they didn't want to do it because of COVID. And then the Silla yeah. Foundation stepped up and said, you know what? We're going to do it ourselves. And then uh, they were setting it up to do it themselves. And then the city, because of because of the Silla Foundation, the city had to change your heart. Yeah, because they got embarrassed because they yeah. were embarrassed. They were shamed into it. And It you know, really is amazing how, 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 you know, I don't want to get political, but how certain people make it into office and that the, the the, the things that they come up with, their ideas. I mean, something so simple as, as you know, let these 9-11 families grieve. It's, it's, sure. it's one day a year. They're not, they're not protesting down Fifth Avenue. They're not smashing right. windows. All they want to do is, is gather at Ground Zero. They want to honor their family members. Right. And they, they, that's a great thing. They get together and they want to, yeah. you know, and they want to remember their loved ones. And for anyone to ever deny them that is uh, beyond me. John, do you know Kevin Orenda? 
No. Kevin Orrenda was a police officer with me, I made detective, went to the fire department. He's now the mayor of Wall Township. When that happened last year, he got together with a few people and they have a ceremony now and they're doing it this year and they're going to do it every year. They shine the lights up into the sky. I'm not sure if it's in Wall or one of the towns in South Jersey, but Kevin Orrenda, good man, he actually invited me to go to it this Saturday. And uh, because of something bad, Something good came out of it. A guy, a retired fireman who, you know, cop and fireman who's now the mayor down there said, I ain't standing for this. And and they did their own, they did their own ceremony of lights. It turned out that the city caved. Like you said, the Silla Foundation stepped in, was going to do it. They caved. They wound up doing it. But now uh, down in uh, Jersey. So a lot of the people maybe that live in that area, they don't have to go into the city. They can do their, uh, you know, they can do their honoring of the heroes, you know, in, uh, in that area. Right, because I mean, people tend to, as the years go on, people, I think more, maybe in New York area, you know, hits us a lot harder, obviously, but people across the country, you know, maybe they need to re be reminded sometimes that this was, this was a terrorist attack on our country, you know, this was like right. an act of war in our country, and, it, and it's, you know, I mean, I, I mean, there's, you know, you experience tragedies every day, but this is just, you know, there's a reason that you shouldn't forget this is we we have to stay on God. We have to be diligent and uh, memorizing this every year and, and having these uh, ceremonies that they have a year every year is a way of of keeping it fresh in everyone's mind. You know, guys, we're at an hour and twelve minutes, and I think that uh, we're going to do our final words, and then we're just going to, um, you know, again, twenty year anniversary of nine eleven is this Saturday, and we always want to keep this in everyone's mind. Uh, to memorialize the great heroes and all the people that lost their lives that day and people that are still suffering to this day. Phil, final words? Final words. John, thank you so much for coming on. When Bill and I first started doing this, I told him about you then, and I kept saying, we got to get John on. We got to get John on. So glad you came on. You brought a, a, a lot of uh, a heroism to the show, and you showed us a, a different side of things that we might not have been able to do if if we just did it ourselves. And thank you. And, uh, you know, it's funny. You guys were talking before. 9-10, if I would have said that 20 guys were going to get together, hijack planes and crash them into buildings, you would have probably looked for a straitjacket for me. And now we have post 9-11 and we have to remain diligent, like John said, and uh, especially what went on in Afghanistan recently and, uh, you know, commemorate and celebrate the uh, the lives of these people on this coming Saturday, uh, all the heroes that died and uh, just uh, God bless America. John, final words. Um Thank you guys for having me on. I, I was I was happy to do it. Like I said, I, I'll 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 talk about nine eleven and uh, you know with, till my last breath. You know to, to keep the memories of all these uh, heroes alive. And it's just a, a quick plug to uh, an organization that Phil mentioned earlier called Friends of Firefighters. Um, the story behind that, if we have a few minutes, Bill, uh, this woman came into the firehouse maybe a week or so after nine eleven. I happened to be in there. And she comes up to me. She said, "Listen, I live in the neighborhood." I want to help you guys. She goes, I, I don't, I can't give you enough of a monetary donation to really make a difference. She goes, but I can get things done. What can I do to help you? And at that time, all bets were off. You know, uh, we were looking for help any way we could get it, you know? So I said, you want to help us? We need bunting for our firehouse. You know, the purple and black drapes that you put over the firehouse or the precinct when somebody dies. We didn't have any. It wasn't enough to go around. You know, it was all gone. So she drove out to a volley house in Long Island. To someone she knew got the button came back to the fire. She goes, here, you're bunting. What else can I do? And I just gave her one task after the 
after the, after the next. No matter what it was, this woman got it done. Her name is Nancy Carbone. And within a year, starting in 2002, she spread to other firehouses, started helping out, got other volunteers to help us. She started her own organization called Friends of Firefighters. It's still going strong today. They basically help active and retired firefighters and their families. I mean, they'll help anybody. You know, if you don't have to be a fine, they'll help anybody. They're very big with the... Uh, therapy, things like that. A anything you need, they're amazing. They can help you with financial things, whatever it is. And uh, if anyone out there is looking to donate to any 9-11 orga uh, organization, if you go to friends friendsoffirefighters.org, it's a great organization. Like Phil was saying before, Steve Buscemi is on the board of directors. It's recognized by the whole fire department in New York City, which is a an impressive thing because we're close-knit. We don't let outsiders in, but they do great work. Thank you, John. And folks, uh if you're not a, um, if you're a member of uh, Police Off the Cuff, we applaud you. Thank you so much for uh, our channel members, our YouTube subscribers. Uh, we're, we're trying to grow this channel as big as we can. That's why I picked Phil for straight out of Brooklyn to do these real crime stories. So, folks, on behalf of Police Off the Cuff, I'm Bill Cannon, and for Phil Grimaldi and John Sorrentino, good night. Stay safe, everybody. <laughs>